there, you're listening to Context, giving you a biblical perspective on issues of race, inequality, gender, abortion, culture, and so much more with Timba Lamini. My people, called, known, created, freed, redeemed, liberated my people. How quickly you have forgotten our shared history, how swiftly you have reduced me to a god of apathy, neutral in the face of injustice. Do you not know me at all? For you perfect your religion like it's a play, getting on your knees to pray, memorizing your sermon lines, finding flawless harmonies to enhance your worship sets. Yet offstage you underpay your employees and justify harsh inequality with your gospel of prosperity, silencing my prophets who proclaim liberation. Your offerings are a mockery when they've been gained through the pain and exploitation of others. Their bones cry out from the ground. The bones of the landless, the enslaved, the imprisoned, the oppressed. The bones of my people cry out from the ground. This ground whose cracks echo the ever-widening chasm between rich and poor in spasm under the weight of injustice. Creation groans, the land cries out for living waters to flow. This drought will not be remedied through trickle-down charity. Your last remaining hope is to seek me and live. The God who brought you up out of Egypt, seek me and live. The God who proclaims liberty to the captive, seek me and live. The God who is good news for the poor, seek me and live. That justice may roll down like mighty waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Wow, the God who is good news to the poor, seek me and live, that justice may roll down like mighty waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. There was a prophetic poem by Tandika Metze anchored on the book of Amos. After this podcast, I encourage you to listen to this poem line by line. Hello and welcome to Context. And if you're listening or joining us for the first time, I'm particularly thrilled that you have decided to take this time to be with us. Coming up, I've got two amazing ladies by the name of Tandy and Renee. You're gonna get an intro shortly after this. And just to make you guys jealous, if you are in the dreary desert of Joburg, I'm staring outside Sea Point at a beautiful ocean. And so yeah, just to get you jealous, a birthday um, as we are having this discussion I can do this for for literally a lifetime I don't think I'll ever get tired of the sea but hey I will be back in Joburg shortly <laughs> but yeah I'm gonna hand over to Tandy to to introduce Renee so this is how it's gonna work Tandy introduces Renee and Renee introduces Tandy over to you Tandy Yes, so I will introduce the Reverend Renee August um, I am grateful that I've had the opportunity to work with um, Renee at the warehouse where I still work, but recently she has moved on to Tier Fund, but I'm grateful that we are still friends. Um, but Renee has been such an integral part of my 
I think, theological grappling and wrestling and growth and has taught me so much in the way that she engages with scripture, the way that she speaks about Jesus and the way that she lives um, into into this vision for justice that God has for the world. Um, and I am very grateful for her teaching and presence and friendship in my life. Yeah. Thank you, Tandy. So this is Tandy Gametze. She is the most phenomenal thinker, I think, in this country in so many ways. Like she has perspectives that run like deep, wells um, inside of her that is like an aquifer to nourish our souls while at the same time being just a really fun presence and Tandi I've loved your friendship and your wisdom and all that you've taught me over the years of not only being colleagues but being friends as well and we've had the opportunities to travel mm -hmm. together over the last few years and just to see you in different places and opening up people's minds and hearts and imagination with your beautiful gift of poetry especially like it just blows me away every single time and so your thoughtfulness and your intentional grappling with things is profoundly wonderful and a gift to me in my life Thank you. Making me blush. Amazing. In fact, speaking about your professional ability to grapple with things. Now, being a poet, you know, I was pleasantly surprised. I've just listened to this, this, this poem, this amazing poem that you wrote, you know, and we're obviously currently just trying to grapple with the current looting that has taken place. You know, but there's so much that you speak in that poem, speaking about Amos and so on. Do you want to just take us through what was going on or going through your mind when you wrote it, you know, in relation to, to South Africa? Sure. So I wrote it actually um, for the second justice conference in South Africa that happened, I think, end of 2018. Um, and it was actually, I mean, it feels like a very communal poem um, because Leading up to the Justice Conference, we were really intentionally grappling with the book of Amos. Um, and so as the warehouse community, we would read from that book, um, I think, most mornings together um, and just kind of grapple with what was there. And it felt I just remember being so confronted by this book because it felt like such a mirror image of our society today and the different issues that Amos was speaking to in his day were so similar to the issues that we were facing um, down to like the the injustices on wine farms that sure. we see in um, Cape Town today and various other things. So yeah, it was birthed out of that season of like communal grappling with this text. Um, so yeah, I think it's it's it feels like a special poem to me because it it feels like it's mu it's much more than just me who wrote it, but comes out of this journey that we went on together. Um, yeah, and I think just the fact that in those in those books of the Old Testament, the prophets um, they speak so clearly to some of the sure. things that we experience today. And I think sometimes we need to pay more attention to them. 
And would you say, I mean, currently we're, we're not speaking clearly as or clearer then or as clearly as they were, they were, they were speaking back then? I think so, for sure. I think there's, there's many spaces that as the church, we need to be ta- actually taking sides for justice. I right. think there's certain areas where we are not called to be wishy-washy or to where it's okay for people to just do whatever they feel they want to, but where we actually need to say, no, this God is on the side of the oppressed. God is for justice, for a world where we live in shalom and right relationship with each other. Um, and that calls that requires certain things of us. Right. And, and I think the interesting part is, you know, you have a situation, you know, and I agree with you, um, you know, a God who who's pro justice, but maybe somebody listening, they, I mean, trying to wrestle with this thing, but hang on a second, you know, uh, who is the person that's oppressed and isn't this God also embracing the one that is doing the oppressing, so to speak. And then, so then when we take sides, how then do we explain away a God who's kind of neutral or is he neutral? That's another question. Is he neutral? You know, when he sees what is happening in the country without, you know, alienating others who who God is supposed to also be on their side? Um, I mean, so I definitely don't think God is neutral. Right. Um, I think God has a vision for a world that they would like to see. And it's a world where we are in good relationship and there's good relationship between all things. Um, and I believe that it's not it's not a binary. I think we right. can sometimes think about it as a binary. If God is on the side of the oppressed, it means that God is against other people. And I don't think that that's how it is. I don't right. think God is against people. Um, I think we have to think about it in terms of our liberation being tied up in each other's li- liberation. And sure. if if some are oppressed, then none of us are fully are fully human or, or are fully liberated. And so sure. so I think the the liberation of the oppressed is also the liberation of the oppressor. Sure. Um and I think I think we must recognize also that often those lines are not as clear as we'd like them to be. Mm. Um, I think there's certain situations where it's very easy to think about the binary of the oppressed and the oppressor. Right. And I think in our society today, it's slightly more complicated than that. But I think we must we must see it in terms of our liberation being connected to each other's liberation. Sure. Yeah. And it's, yeah, and it's interesting, you know, the way you, you, you're putting it in, I mean, very few. And I think, you know, um, in, in our context, who would see a person doing the wrong, needing some level of, of liberation. You know, I think it does bring me back to your, uh, not in your point, but in one of your speeches in, in, at the Justice Conference, I think in 2017, uh, Renee, when you are saying that... Um, it's not what you see, but it's through it. it it's what you see. It's it's, it's what is how you, basically. I'm not sure you you'll help me how you actually phrase it, but but it's some, I'm being tongue tied. You've been trying to explain or sort of re rephrase what you said, but in in essence, you say that it's not what we see with our eyes, but it's through what we see. 
I don't know if I'm putting it correctly, you know. And I'm thinking it now in relation to what um, Tandi is saying, that even the, the liberator in many ways needs needs liberation. And, uh, and now, we, we, obviously, we're trying to go back to, to what we saw in the looting. And the question begs, are we seeing things correctly? <laughs> you know, wh what is it that we need to see? Are we missing something? I mean, I think the quote you're talking about is actually the words of Dan Jones. What right. you see is not what you're looking at, but what you're looking with. Right. And, yeah, those words, I feel like I'm a stuck record when I say that. But, like, the place where your feet are, that's where you do theology from. Right. And where your feet are has created the shape of the lens through which you read scripture. Right. Mm. It creates the spectacles through which you see Jesus. Mm. And for us to be able to see a different perspective, it requires some kind of intentionality. Right. We need to change our lenses. We can't just see something different because we are so blinded by our own bias. Right. that it's impossible for us to see certain things. Um, and so when you talk about the looting, like my first question is, um, what looting are you talking about? Hmm. Because, you know, in the South African conversation, land expropriation without compensation, we heard that, what, two, three years ago. And if I read history correctly, that happened in 1913. Right. When the British governor decided that 80% of all the land in South Africa would be for the exclusive ownership of white people. Sure. So there was land expropriation without compensation. It's not a new thing. And the Group Areas Act was just one in a series of land acts that happened over decades in this country. And so there's been looting of South Africa prior to 1652, when the Portuguese first came. It's not, that's not even documented in our history books. And I mean, we can carry on with a gold rush and we can talk about diamonds and Kimberley. But the looting of the lands that is not just South Africa, but the continent of Africa sure. has happened for so, so long mm. that to extract this particular event in July 2021 is like, I'm trying to think of a TV series. It's like watching, you know, a, a show that has nine seasons and you watching season seven, episode three for 10 minutes <laughs> and assuming that you understand what's mm. going on there. Mm. And sure. while that 10 minutes could have meaning for you in this moment, you're like, oh, that helps me make sense of this thing. You don't, mm. you don't know the whole story. And so you don't tell the whole story and you don't see the whole story, but you also don't see the other characters in the story and you don't understand the impact 
of what you've just seen. Mm -hmm. The July 2021 story takes place in a context, not KwaZulu Natal South Africa, right. not Jacob Zuma South Africa. Right. It takes place in a much broader context with a whole lot of people. And yeah, depending on what part of the story you focus on, will determine the conclusions you come to right. about that particular event. And sometimes that's the only conclusion you can come to because of the spectacles you have. Right. And so I guess the invitation for me in this is to say, hey, let's try on another pair of spectacles here. Let's look at this geographically, maybe, mm. spatially. Why, why does it in? Right. Or let's look at this politically. Why this time during Cyril Ramaphosa's presidency? Or we can look at it, you know, racially. Or we can look at it economically. Like, pick a lens. Right. And as we do that, we begin to notice things that actually is in the story already. But because of what we're looking with, it limits the perspective we can get on the story. And it gives us a very narrow picture of what else is going on. And then when you, when you think about that as someone who follows Jesus, like, it's important then to ask the question, so where would Jesus be in this story? Mm. And, and what would Jesus be doing if Jesus was living in... KZN right. in July 2021. What are the actions of the life and the body of Christ and the consequences of being a disciple of Jesus? Right. Um, and again, depending on, on where your feet are, that's where you'll find your answer. Sure. And I don't think that there's one answer. I right. think respectfully, um, we need to honor the tradition of scripture. Right which gives us many perspectives on the same story. First and Second Chronicles and First and Second Kings is telling the same story. Right. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, four Gospels. People always ask me now, what about the Gospel? I'm like, no, there's not another Gospel. There's, right. there's at least four in our own scriptures. There were more than four that were written. But four were canonized. Four perspectives on Jesus. Why four? And when we, if you study theology, you hear, oh, why is it different? Oh, because the audience is different. You see, context changes the messaging of the gospel. Mm -hmm. Not because the gospel is flaky and, you know, like a chameleon to just be convenient, but because meaning comes from context. Right. And so the sense-making of the person and the life and the words and the action and location of Jesus means different things when you speak to different people. Right. And so that needs to be added into the story to help flesh out, you know, the beauty and the hope and the pain and the realities of everyone's life experience in that story. Because God is present in all the stories, not right. just one particular group. And, and, and it's interesting also you, you're mentioning uh, Christ that I mean what would Christ be doing now in 2021 um, you know 
And I mean, you, you paint a different picture in a sense of the different lens, whether it's economic, and um, you know, even with the with the gospels speaking to different different audiences. Now you have somebody who will say, no, but you know, for me, it's quite simple. It's easy. You know, the eighth commandment says, "Thou shalt not steal," and Jesus was in the synagogue, you know, and and uh, expounding on the, on the on the holy scriptures of the time. You know, or in other cases, he's seen teaching. Now, shouldn't that be, you know, what we as Christians also emulate, you know, in how we, we unpack what is going on? I'm not sure if maybe Tanya wants to, to I mean, to, to get involved. We say, Jesus is, well, you don't believe God is, is neutral in this, in, this, in this kind of thing. How do we, you know, how do we have these multiple lens? But at the same time, remain truthful to Scripture. And you mentioned something earlier about binaries. Have we created binaries that kind of limit us, you know, or reduce the impact of the gospel, you know, to one position that we're in, thereby almost making it just almost ineffective? Hmm. Yeah, so um, I think definitely it's important here to ask question ask deeper questions about how we read scripture and so that quote that Rene mentioned um, it's not what we're seeing but what we're seeing with and I'm probably also butchering it in some way <laughs> um, but I think as important as that is when it comes to looking at our own context it's just as important to think about when it comes to looking at scripture um, and we've done many kind of contextual Bible study workshops and trainings and things, thinking about that. Um, but I think I think one of the things that allows us to be very dangerous as Christians is the way that we read our Bible kind of acontextually and that we can just pick things and, and say the Bible says this. I mean, I think for me, I... I, I don't ever say the Bible says this in a definitive way about something because the Bible says many things and I don't think it's actually helpful to read it in that kind of way as like just pulling out something and saying definitively the Bible says this. So I I feel like a useful thing for me is is really to to look at what it feels like God wants for for the world, um, for all of creation, um, and to start off from that vision of of everything being redeemed. Um, because I think if we if we start from there, then it, and we see we see that the world is not is not matching up to that vision. That there's people within South Africa. Um, who live without what they need every day. And there's some who live with way too much, much more than they need every day. That doesn't match up to this world that, that I believe God wants to see. Um, and so then I feel like then the people implicated in that are the people who have too much. And I think as, as Renee has mentioned with our, hist our long histories of looting in South Africa, um, and and seeing things from that perspective, I think the people who are much more implicated 
than the people who are so-called um, stealing. And I think whether you can call something stealing when something has already been stolen, I think needs to be, we need to, I think, make more complex how we, how we can see that um, as stealing when we haven't defined the other things as stealing. Sure. But it, to me, it feels like there are people who are more implicated than those people who are taking these small things from the shops or whatever. And I think when we when we think of our, how we need to live as people who say that we follow Jesus, I think that's more what we need to be thinking of. Um, what is my role here? Um, what is this vision that we want to see in the world? And and how does my how does the way that I'm living um, get in the way of that vision, or serve that vision, lead us towards that vision? Um, so maybe th- for me, I think that feels like a helpful kind of place to start from. Sure. And so, I mean, so is it then, you know, like, so we have the law, and I think a lot of people say we have the law, and the law doesn't define the, the, the 14, okay, it doesn't even have capacity or jurisdiction or the scope or reach to get to for the 1400s, for example, or 16, whatnot. And so legislatively speaking, it is not anything illegal as far as the law is concerned. Now, what I'm hearing from you, you're saying even the, the legal definition, is it now another lens? Maybe you can help us there. Is, is, it, an, <laughs> is it another lens that sort of, that kind of avoids the issue? Because we've got the law to say, hey, yeah. you know, you've got the title deeds. How you got the title deeds, you know, it's depending on which side of the spectrum you fall on, it's, it's, it's neither here nor there. You know, it's not like here nor there for you who owns, but probably for somebody who was dispossessed or whereas family that was dispossessed. You know, that part is a painful one, but at a legislative uh, framework level, it's not considered stealing as such. And so when we look at what we look at, we we say, well, if you failed everything, what does the law say? Yeah. Now, are you, in your view, Renee, is that, are we, is that an easy road, you know, to keep your head in the sand? Very easy. Or there is, there is merit there? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when you say the law, there's just like, I'm like, what law and whose law and who made it and why did they make that a law? Mm. There's a story of a church in Paul. Um, There was a guy who was a member of this Dutch Reformed Church and they wanted to build a hall for their church. But there was another church just over there, very close, like less than 100 meters away from where the church was. And so this guy had power because he was in parliament. And now he goes to this church and now they're sitting, his elders are talking about how they're going to build a hall for the church. And you know what he does? He uses his political influence and redraws the boundary for the Group Areas Act. Sure. Just 
just a little more to include that church building. Sure. And now that area is declared for whites only. Sure. Mm. Legislated. Legal South African law, which gives the church permission to take possession of that building. Boom, problem solved. We've got a church hall. Sure. Let's meet there and glorify Jesus. Sure. That's just one little story. Yeah. I can tell you many more. And there are families all over this country who will tell you some of the stories of what happened to them. Paul in um, Romans chapter 13. Paul says, about the government right. who has been put there in charge over you by God mm. to create order, right? Now, where was Paul when he was writing that book? He was in prison. Mm. Why was he in prison? Why did the Romans put him in prison? Because he disobeyed the law of the government. Right. Now, if this brother is sitting in jail for disobeying the government and he's writing to the church to say, obey the government. Ask that same question about law of that passage. How do we understand the law? Because how you understand the law is dependent on where you find yourself. Mm -hmm. Paul sitting in prison writing a letter to the judge to say, God has put this government over you. Right. It's the same person who rejects the law that tells him stop proclaiming Jesus as Lord. Why? Because Caesar is Lord. That's the message of the Roman Empire. Right. Politics and religion was the same thing in the time of Jesus. Mm -hmm. The names given to Caesar was Son of God, Lord of Lords, King of Kings. Mm -hmm. Now, when the church begins to proclaim Jesus King of Kings, that's a political statement. Right. And Paul says, I know this law of the Roman government, but I, I'm a slave of a much higher law. Mm. And I mean, people immediately go, whoa, 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 who's to decide what's the higher law? Mm. Is it about your interpretation or not? And, and in some ways, I think the story of South Africa tells us a little bit about what happens in that context. That when you choose to disobey the law of the land, like Paul, mm. then you must be willing to suffer the consequences. Right. That's submission to the law. Jacob Zuma went and turned himself in mm. as an act of submission to the law. When he was told, you need to be in prison by midnight. Mm. And, I mean, I'm not a Jay-Z fan at all. Do not misunderstand me. Right. If Jacob Zuma can understand that, why do Christians have such a hard time understanding these things? If he had not submitted himself to the law, he would have been saying, okay, then you must not come arrest me. And of course there would have been mayhem, but that's what would have happened. That was the big debate game. Okay, what are they going to do if he doesn't go to jail? Mm. 
they were going to have to go into Lutaka and arrest him. Mm. So, in South Africa, the law is still messed up in Cape Town. I mean, they make laws in Cape Town all the time. They talk about this beauty. But Cape Town is ugly. Sure. We are one of the most economically unequal cities in the world, along with Joburg. So it's not a DA problem. Mm -hmm. It's an ANC and a DA problem. And why is it that there is this extreme inequality? Because there's a bunch of laws that makes it possible for certain people to make money and that exact same law is the same law that makes you poor. The laws that makes it possible for me to be rich is the same law that creates poverty for the poor and not for the rich. Right. You go to the bank, you want an interest rate? What are the rules of the bank or the laws that govern economic mm -hmm. Relations. It's that those who have get it easy. Right, and 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 I think it's interesting. Even I mean. Well, sorry, no, can I just no, 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 still go, go, for it, go for it. Go for it. My question is, how is that not looting? Right. That we create laws to make looting legal. And then we also create laws to make looting illegal. Right. But both is stealing. And if you think that God thinks neutrally about this, then I invite you to come and read the Bible with me. Right. Because I think the words of Matthew, seek first the kingdom of God and all its justice, and all these things will be added unto you. Mm. But Jesus wasn't messing about with that. Right. I know I know that your Bible might say seek righteousness and that's fine. I'm happy with the word righteousness. Because righteousness is about right relationships. And when there is right relationships, economic right relationships, political right relationships, social right relationships, it will produce justice. Right. And so the fact that there is not a production of justice as a consequence of the laws of this country requires each disciple of Jesus to question that one. Sure. And if you don't, then you're conspiring with the enemy. You're declaring war against God. Mm. Because God's dream is that you seek first the reign of God and its justice, all its right relationships. And these historical narratives of looting, that's not right relationships. Right, and it, then, you know, it, it brings me to this part then where, you know, we, we are living in a democracy now, you know, and all these things happened in a previous, where I think everybody uh, agrees that it's, it's, it's unjust, and I think the, the very word apartheid, you know, there is obviously still apartheid apologists, but they are few and far between, and they are disappearing by the day, or at least overtly we don't see them you know you know <laughs> if they're around they 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 underground or whatnot you know but we are in a democracy and so the question is you know aren't our laws currently democratically um agreed upon laws you know you know isn't it self-defeatist for us to then um 
then one, I think, not take ownership that we are in a democracy, so we ought to be correcting our own laws. And number two, when we make those laws, then we have an obligation then to, to be bound by them, you know, and even how we view, view stealing, you know, has to be subservient to what we as a nation, which is free, has decided. Um, yeah, so I think it's an important question for us to grapple with, absolutely, as people who live in a democracy. Um, I think people have definitely questioned what what that means, actually, that we live in a democracy, because because it wasn't it's not like we all came up with these laws together. And I think I think I mean, so much. So I guess the law often like positions itself as neutral. And I think I think any time something positions itself as neutral, I think we need to um, we need to be a bit suspicious because we don't I think for neutrality or neutral laws to produce justice we would need to all be starting from the same place and there and we would need to all have the same abilities we would all need to have the exact same opportunities the exact same everything that's not how the world is structured um i mean we we were starting in with these democratic laws at the end of apartheid where injustice had been written into the very concrete of our cities um cities had been built to to make some farewell and others to um struggle and and for this injustice to continue to p- perpetuate itself and i think i think there we need to recognize the intentionality that went into this and how how these structures were put into place so that even when the laws were changed, the injustices would perpetuate themselves. Um, so so much planning went into this. And, and that's why I think just as much planning and imagination and work and intentionality needs to go into changing it. But so if we're saying that, then, then laws which assume equality are just going to perpetuate the status quo. And I think that's that's what we have in this country. Um, because people are equal before the law, but are not materially equal, equal in practice, it will continue to perpetuate the same thing. And so within that, I think, and I feel like there's a <laughs> scripture passage for this, but I, I actually don't know. So. <laughs> But, but just the idea that God requires from us far more than the law, um, that if the law is not going to perpetuate shalom, um, then we, we cannot limit ourselves and, and, and limit our behavior to just the requirements of the law. Um, we have to recognize people within our country, within our cities, um, are living without dignity, are living without enough to eat, are living um, in ways that, that mean that when there is a possibility to take food for their family, um, that they will do it. That where people are in such a desperate place that that 
is the best option for them in that moment. And so God's law or God's invitation into into this different kind of world requires us to say that we are not okay living in a situation that allows for that um, and invites us into a much um, a much higher way of living, um, I think, to to live towards something different and to remedy that in in the choices that we make, the ways that we live, the behavior um, that we practice in the world. Hmm, sure. Wouldn't you say though that God is also complicit in this thing? And I think I think we, you know, I think most people are sold is in the element of let's say extreme poverty and all that kind of stuff. I don't think, you know, there's something deep down inside of us that cries for justice and say, you know what, I need to do something for that person, you know, and that person shouldn't go to bed without food as long as I have two hands and I can do something to help. But I think that the bigger question is, isn't God then complicit in it? Like in a sense that, you know, you mentioned the fact that for one, we don't have the same opportunities. We can try and create a more just equal opportunity, you know, um, equal opportunity country or society. However, when we start talking about abilities, didn't God, the very same God that we are worshipping, the one who's given people different abilities, you know, hasn't he created inequality by the virtue of he's made other people shorter than others, others can play basketball, others can't play basketball. Now, can't we then say, well, this, you know, this is not an accident. Some of it is not an accident. It is part of God's creation to create an element of inequality. <laughs> I would say the scripture tally um, is referring to for me. <laughs> the, it runs through the entire fabric of scripture. Right. The the story of manner. Right. Liberation comes, and then there's laws for manner. Each one shall gather what they need. And what happens when people gather more than they need? Everyone could smell the stink of those who had too much. Literally, that's what is in God's nostrils. Sure. And Amos says exactly the same thing. Read, who is Amos speaking to? Not to people out there. He's speaking to the, the people of God. Right. We would say the church. Amos is writing to the church, he's writing to the leaders of the church, he's writing to a worshipping community. Your worship practices are a stench in my nostrils. Sure. Why? Why? Because you underpay your workers. Sure. Because you earn too much and others earn too little. Hmm. Right? Then, then Jesus comes along, we're fast forwarding now, but I mean, I can, it will take too long to go through, you know. Genesis through Revelation, but but the disciples come to Jesus and they say, teach us to pray. Mm. Um, a friend of mine reminds us, these are Jewish men. They're not asking, teach us to pray because they don't know how to pray. Mm. Mm. They ask Jesus, what's your prayer? All right. And the first word in that prayer is our. 
It's a communal prayer, not I, not sure. me. Wow. It makes us belong to one another. Sure. And then it says, give us today our day. So, how is it that the dream of God can be that God gives us our daily bread, but I go hungry and you eat? Sure. Jesus is, is quoted as saying to Judas when the woman breaks the alabaster jar, he says, Oh, such expensive perfume, we should have sold it and given the money to the poor. Mm. Jesus says, The poor will always be with you. Yeah. Jesus is not condoning poverty. Right. Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy mm. that says, The poor will always be with you, therefore, do not close your hand. In other words, this is how we live. Mm. Our possessions are in an open hand so that when the poor have need, they have access to what they need. Mm. And so we create laws that remove access. That's breaking the very law of God. Mm. And, and then you can't be part of mental God's dream come true for the can't. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Mm. <laughs> if we did that, it produces justice. Mm. And so, I mean, I think some preachers have created confusion around this inequality piece by a bad telling or preaching of that parable in, in Matthew 25, the parable of the talents. Mm. Well, what a discussion. We'll leave it there for today. Next week, we continue our conversation with Tandi and Renee, beginning with Renee giving a fresh but ancient perspective of the parable of the talents that Jesus tells to his disciples. This parable appears in Matthew 25, verses 14 to 13. And another version of the parable can be found in Luke 19, verses 11 to 27. This is a story about a man who goes away on a trip. Before he leaves, he entrusts money to his slaves. To one, he gives five talents. To the second, he gives two talents. And to the third, he gives a single talent. The first two slaves double their money. They give the original investment and their profit to their master when he returns. The third slave, however, buries his talent out in a field instead of trying to make a profit. He returns only this one talent when his master comes back. The master is pleased with the first two slaves, but he is dissatisfied with the third's actions. He reprimands the slave and casts him out into the darkness. The talent's parable has typically been interpreted as being about proper investment. Jesus' disciples are urged to use their abilities and gifts to serve God without reservation and without fear of taking risks. Renee, however, argues differently. You don't want to miss this one out. Next week, same time. Sa lani Until next time, cheers. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Context. We pray that today's podcast helps you live your best life for God and that you're encouraged to invite others to do the same. If today's discussion was helpful to you, please take a moment to rate and review the podcast. In doing so, you will help others learn more about living for God in our context. If you would like to get in touch with us, please contact us on the details in the description. Because truly, context is everything.